May is Fibromyalgia Awareness Month. It's important to raise awareness about this chronic and often debilitating invisible illness known as fibromyalgia. This month-long campaign is an opportunity to educate people about the symptoms, causes, and treatments of fibromyalgia, as well as to show support for those living with these and other related invisible illnesses. Through increased awareness, we can work towards better understanding and management of fibromyalgia and ultimately improve the quality of life for those who are affected by it. And now on to this week's episode. Thanks to listeners like yourself, Conquering Your Fibromyalgia consistently ranks among the top podcasts in fibromyalgia. By subscribing, rating, and reviewing, you can help us climb the charts. Type Conquering Your Fibromyalgia in your podcast provider. Hit the subscription or follow button and leave a five-star review. This will make it easier for podcast listeners to find Conquering Your Fibromyalgia. This week, we are going to start a series on Lyme disease. Lyme disease, in many respects, is very straightforward, but in others, it can be confusing and even controversial. As a physician practicing in Wisconsin, I am no stranger to Lyme disease. I've seen many with acute Lyme and have helped them get better. However, there is a condition called chronic Lyme disease and a separate condition called post-Lyme treatment disorder, which are shrouded in a cloud of mystery and confusion. These include diagnosis, testing, and treatments. Many of the symptoms overlap with fibromyalgia. Research is ongoing, and many who have been diagnosed have been through ongoing struggles. Many have felt abandoned by traditional medical providers. Into that vacuum have been doctors and other medical providers called Lyme literate doctors who are attempting to find meaningful answers and solutions. We will help unpack these using an evidence-based medical approach, hoping to offer helpful and meaningful insights. For those of you who are listening to the podcast for the first time, I am your host, Dr. Michael Lenz. I am a pediatrician, an internal medicine physician, and a lifestyle medicine doctor. I've been a doctor for over 26 years. Are you someone living with fibromyalgia? Do you know someone who has fibromyalgia? Or are you a medical doctor or other healthcare provider who wants to learn more? My goal with the podcast is to help inform, inspire, and equip those who are going through struggles and for those who are trying to help people who are going through fibromyalgia and related problems. This podcast is meant for educational purposes and make sure all your signs and symptoms are discussed with your trusted medical doctor. This podcast is a supplement to what is covered in the book, Conquering Your Fibromyalgia, Real Answers and Real Solutions for Real Pain. The inspiration for the book was my own patients, who I felt deserved comprehensive education. I also hoped it could be a helpful resource for the other millions of people in the United States, let alone the world, who are struggling. Hopefully, medical doctors and other healthcare providers can gain 
some helpful insights as they try to care for their own patients with fibromyalgia and related problems. And now on to this week's episode. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that has gotten a lot of discussion over the last several years and often is very confusing, yet there are some things that are straightforward. I have a special guest. His name is Dr. Zach Telfer. He's a PGY4, which means he's in his fourth year of a four-year residency in combined internal medicine and pediatrics. He is planning on starting a infectious disease fellowship next summer. I know him for now over three years because he's gone to my clinic about once a week, getting a chance to learn outpatient pediatrics and internal medicine. And he's been exposed to fibromyalgia and related problems as far as seeing patients in the clinic. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. I've heard all about it in clinic. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I know you've listened to a few episodes. Being a medical resident, It's very busy. Can you tell us about your story about getting into med school, what you did before? I think it's a little interesting path into medical school. And I started off in rural Wisconsin, growing up with parents from dairy farms, so very standard Wisconsin family. And I decided in high school that I wanted to pursue college. I didn't quite know what I wanted to do, but I went to undergraduate training in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And I fell in love with parasites, oddly enough. <laughs> I had found a podcast, actually. I don't probably don't need to plug it here, but it was a parasite podcast that's fairly popular. And I ended up buying a textbook online just for fun. And I would read about parasites. And I decided, oh, I really like microbiology. I like biology. So I started learning about medicine and what it took to go into medicine. And I decided to become pre-med, which is not necessarily a major, but it's a distinction where we decide, oh, I'm going to go to med school, so I probably should take the classes that will get me there. And so I had a major in biology and microbiology. So I had two degrees, and the microbiology was mostly because I love parasites and microorganisms. I decided to pursue medical training. I moved to Milwaukee for medical school. I did four years here, and I decided to continue my parasite work. And I worked with schistosomiasis, which is a parasitic disease that happens in Africa. And it's a human disease, but there's actually schistosomiasis in Wisconsin, and we call that swimmer's itch. And so it's a bird disease, but we get it in the skin and causes itchiness. And so it's interesting. It's a little nerdy, but then decided to stay in Milwaukee for my residency training. So after four years of medical school, I decided to go on to my MedPeds training. And now I'm in my fourth year, like you said. Why did you decide to become a MedPeds resident? What drew you, you to that? Yeah, I think the time that I spent in medical school, I spent a lot of time studying global health and I was studying parasitic and tropical diseases. I spent time in Africa. I saw a lot of nonprofit organizations that were providing medical care to the village that I was staying in. And I started to see that there were people that would come to Africa or go to these places in the world that are developing, and they would practice outside their scope of medicine that they would normally practice in 
at home. For example, there's an Australian adult anesthesiologist coming to Africa and providing pediatric care. That's not their scope of practice. They're not board certified. And it made me feel uncomfortable that in the future, if I wanted to pursue global health, that I wouldn't have training in either pediatrics or medicine. So I felt that if I wanted to better treat and educate people on diseases, especially infectious disease ones, I would want to be board certified in both kids and adults. Yeah, sounds great. A lot of people pick both. You get a chance to be an expert in pediatrics and internal medicine. And infectious disease is really great because so many of the disease pathogens overlap, I think, in training when you're a pediatrician, it helps you become a better internist. And when you're an internist, it makes you a better pediatrician. And I find that probably with a lot of your peers tend to be pretty driven people wanting to take on two board certifications instead of just settling for one. Yeah. I'm sure people ask you all the time, why didn't you just choose family medicine if you wanted to treat the spectrum? And I don't know if you have an answer that you've talked about on the podcast before. One is I thought that's what I would I never even heard of what internal medicine or pediatrics was. I remember working out at Wisconsin Lutheran College across the street from the medical college, and there was somebody probably two years older than me who had just matched in this thing called MedPeds, internal medicine peds. And I'm like, what's that? And I started hearing about it. I'm like, oh, well, that sounds cool. And I'm a guy, and I don't think that doing obstetrics is going to be a big draw. It wasn't a huge interest, nothing against that, but I knew that I probably wouldn't be practicing that anyway. So why not get an extra year of training minus six months of doing obstetrics and learning so much more in depth. I think there's a different mentality. I think part of the internal medicine mindset, especially is being that detective and trying to problem solve and figure things out in a non-operative fashion, doing a combined residency in pediatrics and internal medicine allows people to do both specialty training as well as primary care. This is especially helpful because there are many medical problems that are traditionally thought of as just more adult problems and there are other medical conditions where you think of them classically as a pediatric problem. Take fibromyalgia. It's thought of often stereotypically as a middle-aged female problem, but in reality, it is much more common than we probably appreciate in children and teenagers. It's just that we often don't recognize it, or there are the early beginnings of fibromyalgia and other central pain processing disorders like painful periods. Many patients who are listening to the podcast may feel very frustrated and disconnected by the medical community. They often don't seem listened to. I asked Zach about medical school and residency training to help us understand the challenges that students and residents go through on their education journey. I also asked Zach what kind of training and education he had on fibromyalgia and related problems. I won't pretend that I'm unique, but I do think I'm a bit of a glutton for punishment. I think I talked about my undergrad training where I did both biology and microbiology. Then I decided to do medicine and pediatrics. And in the future, I hope that I can do both infectious disease for adults and pediatrics. But 
every time that I start in a new school and a new training program, there's thousands or millions of things that we end up learning at each stage and we're tested on it and we have to put it into practice. And if you've ever tried to remember all of that information or even remember names and birth dates, it's difficult. All the things that we learn, we learn over and over again and we practice by repetition and there are some things that come up more often and they're easier to remember and there's things that come up less often and it's not as easy to remember. Or there's some things that people feel uncomfortable about and don't ever talk about. I would say that this podcast caters to the things that we are uncomfortable talking about in medicine. And potentially, that's why in medical training, we don't see it as often and we don't talk about it as often. And people are then uncomfortable with this topic and then don't teach about it. And then the cycle continues. But for the most part, we're learning about thousands of disease processes and their treatments, and then what makes them different, what makes them similar. And we're coming up different tests that we have to use to come up with an answer. We're learning a lot of things. And so it's hard to keep that all in our head all at once. And so it's really about repetition and how common you see things. I think having a son just started medical school, I that the analogy sometimes can be like trying to take a drink from a fire hose or a waterfall. There's so much. And part of that is having some context and understanding how common something is and how to look at it clinically and with real people who are struggling with a health problem, no matter what it is, you learn that huge volume, you get a little taste of it with clinical rotations. During medical residency, you get more exposure to medical problems to help get expertise and training in both inpatient and pediatrics and internal medicine for medpeds and in an outpatient rotation. Part of why I enjoy having residents is to make sure you have a good experience, a good exposure, a good taste. I know that going into this, I, I th- I've had at least one parasite infection for one of my patients. <laughs> I know that has happened once with pig worms. You already had an idea to be going in infectious disease and hopefully learning about fibromyalgia. I think you made a comment once that when you were first few months, even year of working with me and taking care of people who have fibromyalgia and related problems, this was a new exposure that you had not seen a lot, but I know you made comments in the last year that now you're like, okay, this is starting to kick in. And now when you apply that to other services you're on, whether it's pediatric gastroenterology and you're looking at cyclical vomiting syndrome and probably no more than most of the attendings on a lot of these diseases and bringing up some of these comorbidities and asking questions to help. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I want to briefly interrupt the podcast to inform you about the fibromyalgia starter pack, which is now available. If you are new to this podcast, it categorizes the episodes in a way that it's more beneficial for those new to fibromyalgia. You can access the link in the show notes to learn more. I think being part of your clinic has made me see that every specialty has their silo. A farm reference, but they have their silo of information. Each silo has this 
thing that sounds like fibromyalgia, acts like fibromyalgia, or something on the spectrum, and no one is communicating across the different specialties. And so I'm starting to see it more. My eyes have been opened a little bit because today we're talking about the infectious disease silo, and we have this post-Lyme syndrome or chronic Lyme that seems to be a mystery to the ID doctors. But we also have, like you said, cyclic vomiting in the GI world. And we have certain rheumatic diseases, even fibromyalgia that sometimes are seen by rheumatologists. It's really been eye-opening to work with you to see the overlap in a lot of these syndromes. And just being aware, at least 10 million people in the United States have fibromyalgia. And when you start asking the right questions and start knowing what to look for, it's more present than we often believe. If you're studying for your internal medicine boards, my last board exam had one question on the recertification about fibromyalgia. There were none, I believe, on the pediatric boards. So when you're in medical school, I'm sure you probably didn't even have any questions on any of your step one or step two boards on fibromyalgia. Do you recall any off the top of your head? Yeah, off the top of my head, I don't remember them. But in hindsight, I may have thought they had arthritis or something and got the question wrong because I I wasn't actually reading. (laughs) I wasn't picking up on the cues. What medical schools are really trying to train or teach their students for the test and the medical tests are set up so that the most important key topics that every medical student should basically know. So if you're on OB and there's somebody having a heart attack or a blood clot, no matter what rotation, everybody should recognize a heart attack or a blood clot. Everybody should probably recognize endocarditis, for example, and the other medical problems along with that. So talking about today, we have some things that are really straightforward or pretty straightforward when it comes to Lyme disease. There are things that seem less straightforward. And then there's a lot of confusion on one of the Facebook groups I'm on. There was a question, why do we have to label things or get all fixated on diagnosis and everything? And I'm like, we need to because that helps grow in our understanding. We have to classify things so that we can do studies and group patients and we can grow in our understanding. Fibromyalgia is a syndrome of symptoms and we try to grow in our understanding over time. We are going to try to do our best to unpack and deconstruct this whole Lyme area. And I don't think traditional medicine spends enough time talking about chronic Lyme or post-Lyme syndrome. What is Lyme disease? There has always been a lot of mystery shrouded around Lyme disease And it's a relatively recent discovery. Lyme has been around for thousands of years, millennia. We found it in mummified remains of cave people that have been frozen. So we know that Lyme has been around forever, but the actual disease of Lyme wasn't really even discovered until the 80s, like 1980s. It was actually because out in Lyme, Connecticut, where the disease gets its name, they were having this group of patients that were complaining of various symptoms. They were all suffering from different swollen knees, paralysis, rashes, headaches, and they were having chronic fatigue. And 
there was a lot of people that were communicating. And this is back before we had social media. There was a lot of these patients, doctors who were puzzled because we didn't have an exact diagnosis. They didn't know what was going on. And they started having certain groups that were getting together about these patients. So certain family members, it was happening in kids and adults. And there was actually a couple moms of some of the children with this disease that advocated for more research to be done. They knew that there was something going on. So they had pushed for more research and they actually did a really wonderful job pushing for it because there was a researcher that was already researching different diseases that are transmitted by ticks. Someone that was studying Rocky Mountain spotted fever transmitted through a tick bite. And that was Willie Bergdorfer. And ultimately in the 80s, he found out that a lot of these patients with this disease, he was able to find a bacteria and actually a pretty cool bacteria now called Borrelia burgdorferi. It's a corkscrew shaped bacteria that is microscopic, so it can't be seen. And it's transmitted by a black legged tick or the exodes tick. And once they found that there was a bacteria, then we decided now we have something to target. And we quickly found out that we had antibiotics that could easily kill Borrelia, the Lyme disease bacteria. And so we gave the name because of the researcher Burgdorfer to the species Borrelia burgdorferi. But there are actually other spirochetes. It's that those spiral bacteria that cause Lyme disease and various other diseases. There's some other Borrelia that can cause it. But in the United States, the majority of the diseases that cause Lyme are caused by Borrelia burgdorferi. And it's actually pretty interesting because Lyme is probably understudied and now is one of the most rapidly growing infections across the world behind HIV infections. So it's not just common here in the United States, but it's also common in Central Europe, but can be seen in various other countries and it's growing every year. So I think that's important to point out that this is disease that's growing and we don't have a lot of information, especially in the late manifestations of the disease. And we have treatments that work most of the time, but occasionally don't work every time. So there's a lot that is still yet to be known about the actual organism and how our immune system functions in relation to the organism. Now, at least we know that this spiral bacteria causes this disease and it's transmitted by a certain type of tick. And it typically occurs in certain regions where the tick is present. And unfortunately, Wisconsin is a hotbed of these ticks, of the black-legged tick. But also, as we talked about, Lyme, Connecticut, the New England and the Mid-Atlantic region of the United States is also a very common place where we see Lyme disease and these ticks. I have had my record number of Acute Lyme patients, six this year. I used to average about two a year, but have had six. I don't know if that's an indicator that it's becoming more common or just chance, but it's definitely a real problem. One of the yeah. satisfying things is every patient I've had that I've treated with acute Lyme has had that acute Lyme symptoms improve. What are the symptoms of relatively what we call acute Lyme? Yeah. Yeah. So Lyme is really interesting because there are different clinical features or presentations, as we say in medicine, depending on 
what stage of the disease. We have a stage one, a stage two, a stage three, but typically we talk about early Lyme and we talk about late Lyme. And when we are first infected with the bacteria that causes Lyme disease, typically people present with various aches and pain, some joint pain, joint swelling, some more generalized symptoms like headache or flu-like symptoms. Sometimes we get some swollen lymph nodes or glands. And the one that we always talk about, especially that's very testable because it's got a nice picture associated with it. In early Lyme, we can get a rash called erythema migrans that typically we call bullseye or a targetoid lesion where we see a red circle and then we see a halo around it and then another red lesion encircling. So it looks a lot like a bullseye. So to review, about 70 to 80% of those who have Lyme disease will have the erythema migrans rash, and then the more systemic symptoms that occur within the first few weeks to months of infection include fatigue, which is much more than someone's baseline, fever, headaches, muscle and joint aches, chills, and lymphadenopathy. Dr. Telfer talks about how erythema migrans rash is not always classic. A lot of times the rashes don't look nearly as beautiful as some of the pictures that you can see on the internet. <laughs> we can break up early Lyme into two stages. There's the localized stage where you're just getting some of those things that we talked about, but there is a disseminated portion where the spirochetes are everywhere. We can get some heart disease where we can actually have heart blocks or some inflammation of the heart muscle. We can get more malaise or fatigue, and then we can get other things like rashes, other places on our body, and then we can have more arthritis and swelling. And then some of the other things we can see is a lot of nervous system changes, meningitis. Sometimes we can get things like Bell's palsy. So people will lose some of their tone in their face because of the inflammation associated with the Lyme disease. This inflammation of the facial nerve leads to something called Bell's palsy. That's where we will wrap up this week's episode. Next week, we will talk about later stages of Lyme disease. We are going to talk about diagnosing Lyme disease and then on other episodes, chronic Lyme and post-Lyme treatment disorder or syndrome. The topic of Lyme disease is very relevant to fibromyalgia because many people have been diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease or post-Lyme treatment syndrome. Many of these have been diagnosed through Methods not approved by the FDA or CDC. Their symptoms overlap with fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome. That begs the question, are these the same entities? We will discuss this in more detail in subsequent episodes. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. And remember, if you think you have Lyme disease, make sure you discuss this with your doctor. Until next week, go Team Fibro.